Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, good morning, friends. You know, back in 2006... Uh, Dr. Randy Pausch had it all. He had a wife, uh, three kids. He was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon. He was actually really on cutting edge, uh, professor and researcher in virtual reality computing. He did a stint at Walt Disney Imagineering and other places. And then he found out he had incurable pancreatic cancer. He was told he had three to six months of healthy life, and then he was dead within another year. So in the midst of that, he gave a lecture to his students called The Last Lecture, Really Achieving Your Childhood Dreams. And it's a powerful and poignant lecture. Not only is the content good, it became a best-selling book. You can read it as well. But it's particularly poignant and powerful because death hangs over it. It was his last lecture, his last words. And so in subsequent years, many professor friends of mine, I've talked about this, and a lot of professors are often asked to to imagine if you were to give one last lecture, how would you sum it up? What would you sum up of your teaching if you had one last lecture to give? Or And I've thought about this for myself. What would I say if I had one last lecture to give or one last sermon to give? Maybe you're not a teacher, but you can still imagine that the last words you'd say to those who love you and whom you love would be important. If you knew you were facing death, how would you sum up what you want to say? Well, this is the situation that the Apostle Paul finds himself here in Acts chapter 20. He's been preaching and teaching all over, planting churches all over the Mediterranean Sea area, and just pouring his life out in service to others. And one of the places he really loved and he spent a lot of time with were the, was the ancient city of, the ancient Greek city of Ephesus. And he loved these brothers and sisters. So he was passing nearby, about to get on a ship. And so he said, please come, please come. I wanna, I wanna give you my last words to you because I know that my life is nearing its end. And listen again, we just heard it read, but let's, let's hear it again. Look at what he says. He says, and now compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem and Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So he gives them this whole speech, and there is a lot of power in this, especially because he knows he is about to face suffering and eventually his death. There's a weight to what Paul has to say to these friends. Now, we're going to come back to this in a few minutes. We're going to to look a little bit more closely at some of what Paul says. But for now, I simply want to put before our minds and just observe the singularity of the passion of this man's life. Paul was a man that God got a hold of and transformed him from being an elite Um, you know, super educated, elite guy with lots of perks, a a religious leader, to being a man who just gave his life, pouring himself out in the service of other people. He lived with a clear, a very clear and burning passion, a purpose to testify to God's grace in Jesus Christ. And so he poured his life out in that way. Now, 
I don't know how you are, but whenever I read or think about Paul, I often feel pretty disconnected from him because he's an apostle. I'm not an apostle. None of us are apostles here. He was a traveling missionary. He wasn't even just a missionary. He lived overseas. His whole life was doing this. So it's easy to kind of think, well, that's for, that's for him. That's not for me. But I want to get underneath the hood of what's going on here. It's not just that, it's not about Paul's specific calling. It's about how he learned to live his life, how he learned to inhabit the world, to live with a purpose of serving others. And today, we're continuing our four-week series on called Serve Somebody. And our hope, our hope is that God would use this series to really light a spark that will transform our church over the course of the next year and years to come into a vibrant community of people who are not only receiving and knowing a lot about God, but have an outward face of pouring out and serving other people. And here's the question I want to ask to get us into that today, and it's this. Where and how in the world did Paul get that kind of vision to live such a sold-out life where he is pouring himself out into other people? Was he just a crazy, over-the-top person? No. Where did he learn to live this way? And I want to show you where specifically I think Paul learned this way of living. And if you're one who pays attention to sermon titles, you'll see on the back of the, if you have the bulletin, this is a 3D sermon, all right? So I've got disciples, dragons, and delight. And our first point hits right on this issue of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And in my opinion, there's no better place to sort of answer that than to look at the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. If you have it on your phone or some other device, look there. Uh, We'll put some of the verses up on the screen as well. It's great to look at it in the Bible if you can, though, as well. So what was Jesus's ministry like? That's the question I'm really asking. What we see in the the first thing Jesus says, the first message he proclaims is right there in Matthew 4, 17. This is the the summary statement of Jesus' ministry. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's the sort of overall banner. And then what you have, if you let your eyes go down just a few more verses, you get from Matthew a summary statement of what Jesus' ministry was about. Look at 4, 23 and following. It says, and he, that is Jesus, went throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So this is a really important summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And notice what Matthew calls Jesus' ministry. He calls it the gospel of the kingdom. It's the message of the good news that God is restoring his reign from heaven to earth. And then what does it consist of? Well, if you look at that, those verses again, it consists of three things, proclaiming and teaching, restoring people to health and life, and calling people to be disciples. So proclaiming, restoring, and then calling to discipleship. So, so let your finger stay there. Put a finger there. I don't know how to do this on a phone, but figure out a way to do that. Open another browser and turn over to 9.35. And listen to these words. 9.35, Matthew 9.35, it says, And Jesus, 
went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you notice that those words are almost identical in 423 to 25 and 935 to 38. That's Matthew's way of saying, this is a unit. Don't worry, it's well bound. This is a unit. And so here's the question. What happens in between 423 and 938? What happens? Exactly the things that are just described as the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus teaches and preaches. That's what's in chapters five to seven, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then if you look at chapters eight and nine, it's a collection of stories of Jesus restoring people and calling them to be disciples. So those three elements of proclaiming, restoring, and calling to discipleship are exactly what Jesus models and does. It is what Matthew describes as the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus' own work. And then what happens right after that? Well, in chapter 10, we see that Jesus turns around out of compassion and he says to his disciples, all of his disciples, you now go do the same thing. And what you see in chapter 10 is that he sends them out. He sends out disciples, not fancy special missionary people, but people who are followers. He sends them out to do the same thing exactly the same thing, of proclaiming, of restoring people, and calling them to discipleship. And along the way, he tells them that this is going, when this happens, that it's going, to be met by, it's going to be met with joy, and it's also going to be met by pain and suffering and rejection. But that one of the key verses is in Matthew 10, 8, it says, freely you've received, freely give. Freely you've received, all the stuff he did in five to nine, now he's turning and says, you to be a disciple, freely give. Again, it's gonna be met with joy. It's gonna be met with opposition. And he says in 1039, then it's worth it because whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Here's what you need to understand, friends. The Bible says that Jesus came into the world God incarnate, he came into the world to relieve the consequences of our sin. And that includes both spiritual, you know, spiritual forgiveness of my sins in my interior person and material relieving of the consequences of sins. Jesus' earthly ministry, where he's restoring people and healing people, that's not just to try to prove that he's God or something, that is a central part of the message and the work of the gospel of the kingdom. Helping the hurting, restoring the broken. It's not just a performance on Jesus' part. It is part of the larger reality of God restoring goodness and truth and beauty to the world. His ministry of healing and restoration is a central part of this. Broken relationships, broken systems, broken bodies are all part of the fallenness of the world that he has come to relieve. He hasn't just come to 
forgive our sins, which is absolutely true. He has come to restore creation itself. As we sing at Christmas, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, right? That's what we sing, and it's true. As far as the curse is found in our bodies, in our lives, in our systems, God has come to bring his blessings. You see, when you look in the Bible, the kingdom of God is not described as a place of disembodied spiritual existence where we have forgiveness of sins, which we do have forgiveness of sins, but it's described, the kingdom of God is described as God restoring all things to where they are supposed to be, to, to reverse the curse and restore the world to Eden. And again, that includes our bodies, our relationships to the entire world. God's redemption through Jesus is holistic. It touches every part of creation. That's the end goal of it. And here's the key. To be a disciple is to do the same things Jesus does. That's what it means to be a disciple. To be engaged in the same things he does, which includes proclaiming and teaching the kingdom of heaven, offering the message of the forgiveness of sins that can be had, and being deeply involved in the restoration of people because that's Jesus' own work and to be a disciple of Jesus is to be engaged in his work. And now do you see where the apostle Paul got this idea that he should be living his life, not just teaching things, but pouring himself out in the service of others. He's a disciple of Jesus and he realizes that this means to follow in the way that Jesus lived and what he did, doing what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He engaged in kingdom of heaven work, proclaiming, restoring, and calling. And again, this is not just about Paul's special personal calling to be an apostle and a traveling missionary. This is the call of being a disciple of Jesus. And that now brings us back to Acts 20. In Paul's last lecture, his final message to his Christian friends from Ephesus, he says a bunch of challenging things, but look at how he ends his, his words to them. Let me read these verses for you again. Acts 20, verses 32 to 35. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Do you see how deeply connected that is to Matthew 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10? Paul is simply living his life the way that he learned from Jesus, serving others, helping the weak, and proclaiming all out of compassion, not for personal gain, but pouring out his life in joyful service to others. And that leads us to our second D, dragons. Now, I understand dragons are not a topic that come up in a lot of our sermons, right? But I want to use this ancient image of a dragon to stick in your mind what the opposite of being a disciple is. And all the stories we have about dragons, which we have lots of stories about dragons going way back into Norse mythology and to Anglo-Saxon and German mythology as well, you will never find a story about a dragon except where a dragon is collecting and hoarding and protecting their gold. Maybe in high school or college, you had to read Beowulf. You may not remember these lines from Beowulf. The dragon is driven to hunt our hordes underground to guard heathen gold through age-long vigils, though to little avail. You're probably more thinking of Smaug, right, from The Hobbit, 
And that's a great dragon example. Smaug for 171 years lives on this pile of gold in the dwarves stronghold inside Lonely Mountain. That is his life. And here's my point, friends. Don't be a dragon. Be a disciple, because a disciple of Jesus is the opposite of a dragon, a creature who hoards and protects his or her gold. You see, dragons in all these stories are symbols of the foolishness of greed. Think about it. What does a dragon need gold for? Nothing. They don't spend it on anything. They just collect it. They love it because it's shiny and people want it. And so they want it, but it really just lures them to sleep. All a dragon wants to do is collect more, but for what end? A dragon is a picture of avarice and greed. Jesus teaches and Paul lives that our lives should not be marked by acquisition, but by service. I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with owning things and, and planning and investing and utilizing wealth to do good. That's not the point. The point is, what is my relationship? What is your relationship to the goods of the world, the gold and also our time and our energy? Is it being a disciple or is it being a dragon? Freely you've received, freely give. That is the life of a disciple. And here's the irony of this whole idea is the truth is that if you are a Christian, you are incredibly rich. In the West, material, yes, to some degree, but I'm talking in what really matters in the interior person. The Bible says, if you are a Christian, you are a trillionaire trust fund child of God. That's your status. Did you notice back in Acts 20 verse 32, that language of inheritance? He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's a great way that the Bible describes what it means to be a Christian is that God gives us this incredible inheritance of life itself. And here's this beautiful connection to ponder. You know, Paul loved and worked and lived among these people in Ephesus so much so that he wrote a very famous letter to them as well. And we call that letter Ephesians. And if you go back and look at Ephesians, what you'll see is that the, the point of Ephesians is very much based on the fact that God has blessed us with an inheritance that is unlike anything else. Look, if you think back to Ephesians 1 that Lindsay read for us a moment ago, Paul says to these brothers and sisters, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And where's this argument go? It kind of culminates in Ephesians 2, where Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, this is the amazing and life-transforming logic of the Christian life. We have been given everything freely, therefore we freely give it away. Our money, yes, 
but most importantly, our time and our energy and our love. And we can do this. This is why this inheritance language is so important. We can do this knowing that the resources that we're giving away will continue to come in nonstop. It will never stop flowing. See, it's not just like, it's, the Bible's not just giving the analogy of like, you've won this huge lottery of $200 million and just over time, you're gonna see through some investments and spending and taxes, everything it's gonna diminish. That's not the analogy. The analogy is you are the heirs of this amazing company that is gonna keep producing more and more such that you can spend your entire life just trying to give the money away and you won't even be able to give the interest away. That's the picture here, that we have been blessed with every spiritual gift and everything in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we give away without any worry, any worry that it will ever run out and will be at a loss. A dragon receives and hoards and is lulled to sleep until he is killed. A disciple labors to give it all away, labors to pour their lives out as a conduit of God's grace to others with joy. And this leads us to our third D of our three-dimensional vision, and that is the light. It's actually one more verse in Acts 20 that I haven't said anything about yet. Let's read those verses one more time to get it, starting again in verse 32. These final words to his friends, Paul says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. And here's the words remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed or happy or flourishing. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when you look throughout scripture, there are times when God you know, tells us something in a pretty challenging way. I can think of like 1 John 3.17, which reads, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love, how does God's love abide in that person? That's, that's a pretty strong word. It's a pretty haunting verse. But I suggest to you that the primary way in which God appeals to us and how Paul, notice, chooses to conclude in his last lecture, his last words to his friends, how does he finally root the call he's making to them to serve others? It's by an invitation to the truly blessed or flourishing life. That is, how do you and I find the motivation to pay the cost, and it is a cost to us, to give ourselves in service to others, to give money away, to give energy away, to give time away? How do you find the motivation to do that? Well, we find it, according to Paul, by remembering that Jesus himself said that there is more life to be found in giving away our lives than there is in receiving, being receivers. Even though everything in us and our world and our flesh tells us, get more, receive more, that's where life is found. We are being told that life is actually found through giving. It's crazy. I mean, so if you think about it, the ultimate appeal that is made to us is for our own self-interest, and that's okay. He's not just saying you have a duty to do this. He's saying 
the final motivation I'm giving you for why you should pour out your life in service to others is because that's actually the more flourishing and blessed way of inhabiting the world. Jesus teaches that the ultimate motivating reason to pour ourselves out is again, not shame or guilt or fear of judgment, but that this is the way that promises life itself. And friends, once you get a hold of that, it will transform you. You see, our relationship with God is a constant invitation. The reason we gather on Sunday morning, the reason we sing songs that have great lyrics and the reason we listen and read books, listen and go and, and talk about the Bible and community group, the reason we do this is because God is constantly inviting us to retool our hearts and our habits to realize that life is not found in the ways that you and I assume it is by being a receiver and giving. Life is actually found by being a giver of grace and kindness and love to others. Let me ask you this. Would you say, honestly, that, you're, that you are experiencing the, the blessed or flourishing or shalom life that Jesus is talking about here and elsewhere? I constantly struggle to find this, as I know you do too. And there could be a lot of reasons why we might really have this sense that we're not flourishing. Physical issues, trauma, which is very powerful, neurological or psychological struggles, real sources of anxiety. Those are all real reasons that we may really struggle to flourish and, and we don't want to diminish those. But I think for many of us, it's not that. And I think for all of us, it's sometimes it's not those things. I often think we don't, I think we often don't experience the flourishing or blessed life Jesus is talking about because we've forgotten what he's telling us to remember, that it's actually more blessed to be a giver than merely a receiver. Do you feel listless? Do you feel directionless in your life? Do you feel unfulfilled? Do you feel hard-hearted, maybe numb? Maybe you're just dragging your feet to church and you don't even know why you care about this anymore. It may be some of those other real issues of physical or neurological or traumatic, and those are important things to deal with, but it may be, it may be today, friends, that the reason you're not feel, feeling like you're connected to God and living a flourishing or blessed life is because you're living your life trying to be a receiver rather than a giver. Because it turns out that when we live self-consumed lives, self-directed lives full of laziness and just seeking our own pleasure, dragon hoarding, it turns out there's no life there. I know in high school, you're worried that you're never going to use math again, but I'm going to give you a math problem, a life math problem that I hope you will remember. And it's this, that G is greater than R. That giving is way greater than receiving. If you remember that, that's enough from your math. That in life, giving is worth way more in every way than receiving. Now listen, I know we're all busy. We're all tired. We have a variety of 
responsibilities and many of us have spouses and children and jobs and committees and commitments and basketball practice and ridiculously long carpool lines. I get it. My life is very full as well. You know, this week, I was just thinking about how sick I am hearing, sick of hearing myself say, I'm busy, as if that's a bad thing. How often people write me and say, I know you're really busy. Or somebody says, I know you're really busy. Don't don't feel bad if you say that to me. I'm not judging you. But my life is busy. But what I'm tired of is adopting that in my mind as if that's a bad thing. Do you know what that means? That means I'm living. Friends, if your life is full and you find yourself tired at the end of the day, especially as you're giving yourself to serving others, whether it's your little children or a coworker or whatever it is, if you find yourself tired and you feel like your schedule is very full, friends, that's called living and that's okay. (laughs) It is okay. This is where the truly blessed life, the meaningful life is found, not in just having everybody wait on you hand and foot or just living this somehow hoarding life, it turns out there's no life there. The actual blessed life you need to get in your mind is the life of pouring yourself out into others. That's where life is found. Be a disciple and find life, not a dragon. Or to channel a little William Wallace, every man dies, not every man really lives. And that's what I want to say to us today as well. Do you want to know the blessed life that Jesus is speaking of? What the Bible again calls blessedness? Then pour your life and your energy and your money out into other people. That is where life is to be found according to Jesus. Hoarding our time and money results in bitterness. Pouring out results in betterness. Which do you want? A real and meaningful life is found in the flowing river of service to others, not in the dead sea of hoarding all that we have in our time and energy and money. Please hear me clearly. This is not a message that is meant to guilt you or shame you or convict you in some kind of way that you just need to go out and do better. That's mere religion. Moreover, it's never going to last. I could get up here and shame you and tell you all kinds of stories that make you feel bad about how much you're not doing. That's not going to really do anything for you. You'll feel bad for a few days, do a couple things, then you you and I will just go right back to our hoarding and protecting. I do want to bring a little heat this morning, but it's what I'm calling happy heat, which I think would be a great name for a barbecue sauce. Happy heat. (laughs) I want to bring a little happy heat on you to melt your hardened hearts and to break up the ice flow, to be flowing rivers in our souls again. Jesus is inviting us to remember that true life is found not in trying to be dutiful. It's not duty that really motivates us. It is delight. And that delight is actually to be found when we pour ourselves out, even at a cost to ourselves that turns out to result in the delight that we long for. So this is the three-dimensional life I'm calling our church to this morning. Be a disciple, don't be a dragon, and don't just be motivated by duty, be motivated by delight. 
that life is to be found in living a life of pouring ourselves to others. But what does that really look like for you and me? Well, I'll come back to this a little bit a couple weeks from today when we conclude our series as well. But for today, let me just say, start small. This message is not a call for you and me to become missionaries necessarily. Some of you might be called to that. This is not a call for everybody to become a missionary like Paul. But it's simply a call for you and me to open your heart, to open your mind to what God might be calling you to do in this place, in this moment, with this person who is in front of you. You can't and you won't be able to solve all the world's problems or even the city's problems or even your neighborhood's problems. But what you and I can do is do what God puts in front of us, pouring out our lives in our service to God and to others in this moment, in this place, with this person. Some of you have more time and resources than others. Some of you have less. That's okay. This is not a one-size-fits-all. This is not holding up the most radical people and saying everybody has to live that way. That's not, that's not how the Bible works. The Bible is speaking to you and me today to open our hearts to him. I love the old rabbinic saying, Rabbi Zusia said, in the world to come, I will not be asked, why were you not Moses? I shall be asked, why were you not Zeusia? <laughs> that's the vision. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. God's not calling you to be Moses or Paul. He's calling you to what God's calling you to do to open your heart, to pour out your life and service to others. So maybe for you, it's just helping a friend in need. Maybe it's taking sincere interest in your waiter or waitress at lunch today. Maybe it's maybe the hardest person to serve, your husband or wife if you're married. If you're a young mom with one or two or 38 kids, may feel like serving those kids is enough. You're not, you don't necessarily call to go do amazing things. Be present to where you are in your life right now. Sitting at Starbucks yesterday morning, I was finishing up my sermon and a good friend texted and said, hey, what are you doing? So I sent a little picture of, you know, me writing, writing the sermon. And, and this friend sent back a picture of, of them making breakfast for their kids. And my response to her is, these are both good works. And that's what I say to you. A sermon may get all kinds of, you know, a lot more people know it happened or something. But if, if you're called right now to serve breakfast to your little kids, that's service. That's good. Pour out your heart in love to them. God calls us to different things in different seasons of life. That's one thing we learned from Ecclesiastes, right? There's a season for everything. Whatever season you're in, if you're sitting on a pile of gold or you're barely paying the bills, you and I can pour out our lives in service of different sorts to people. Start small. Maybe pouring out your life and others looks like making cookies, for someone down the street or someone you know who is, has no connection with anybody anymore, no one's even touched them for three months, maybe. Maybe just going and ministering in that way. Maybe it means dropping a text or an email of encouragement to someone. Maybe 
one of the hardest ones for me, it's being willing to let all the grand plans you had for your Tuesday or whatever it is be disrupted when God puts across your path someone in need. This past weekend, Friday to Monday, I was out in one of my favorite places to go, middle of nowhere, vast cattle ranching land of Northwest Oklahoma, where when I first went there 10 or 15 years ago, I had never seen tumbleweed before. So much tumbleweed, red clay roads, unirrigable land, non-irrigable land largely, but the tumbleweed gets so big, they told me that last year, several pieces of tumbleweed were so big, they blocked the roads. And you had to cut through them, right? Now, I've been out there many times because I have some family friends out there with whom I've developed a very close relationship. And they are the most humble, wise, godly people I have ever known personally. And they are also the most service-focused people I know. They are constantly pouring their lives and their time and their money and their energy to help others in need. I was out there teaching a bunch and preached three times on the weekend, but I am certain that I received way more than I gave. You see, what you have to understand about these people is that by all human standards, this part of the world is nowheresville. Again, this vast scrubby ground, porcupines and armadillos wandering around, old derelict towns. You're driving, you're just driving. You'll go through this little town that is literally one road and every single business is boarded up and has been for probably 30 years, right? The main town I was in has a grand population of 11,975 people. That's the biggest town in this whole area. Yet these people are flourishing and happy, unlike almost anybody I've seen. Why? Because they're not in the center of power. They don't have all the perks and things that we have of living in a city, but they are constantly focusing their lives, not on receiving, but on giving. They are constantly pouring out their lives, helping people in prison, driving two hours to do prison ministry a couple times a week, going to the gates of the prison when somebody gets out and picking them up and giving them vehicles and helping them get jobs. They built a shelter and a program for homeless people. And yes, there are homeless people everywhere, including in this town of 12,000 people. Helping single mothers, starting a kids program to help kids learn study skills and how to be responsible with a job. This is, and I've known these people for a long time, and this is not a fluke. They, this is their whole life. And as I was flying back, my heart was so full not with a sense of guilt or shame that I should be doing more, even though I do want to do more, but I was inspired to see the joy of their lives, tired joy, but joy of their lives as they give themselves out to serve others. That's what I want for myself. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for our church. We don't have to be the biggest church. We don't have to be in the center of power of everything. We just need to do what God puts in front of us to do in this place, this person, this moment. If we all did that, friends, that changes a place forever. So I just want to close today by inviting you to be a disciple, not a dragon, and to simply begin each day with a mindset of, God, what would you have me do? I know that the delight I long for is found not in being a hoarder, but in pouring out my life to 
others. And there's no better example of that than the reason this all exists. The reason that we can do this, not in our own strength. This is not a call to philanthropy only. This is a call to being a disciple. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, referring to himself, the son of man did not come to to be served, but what? To serve. And And the ultimate model of that is that although he was worthy of all glory and honor, he humbled himself and gave his body and his blood to be broken so that we now might live in his way, enter his kingdom and invite other people into this same kingdom life, which includes proclaiming, it includes restoring, and includes calling people to be disciples. So I'm gonna pray. And if you're a Christian, as you're taking the elements today, I want you to think about that this is a picture of pouring out your life and how it, and pouring out one's life gives life to others as Jesus himself did and we do as disciples. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.